Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of our podcast, A's Plus. This is John Shea, the San Francisco Chronicles national baseball writer, and I'm filling in for Susan Slesser. This week, I speak with Mark Canna about all sorts of things, including filling a center field hole, a position he hardly played until reaching the big leagues. Also, broadcaster Ken Korak on calling the Sean Manaya no-hitter and other cool things. Hope you enjoy. Well, this is John Shea with the A's Plus podcast, and we are help happy to welcome Mark Hanna onto the podcast. And Mark, of course, is a longtime Bay Area resident, having grown up in San Jose, Bellarmine High School, Cal, and now with the Oakland A's, about as uh, homegrown as you can be on this team. But Mark, thanks for, thanks for joining us. And I, the first thing I wanted to ask you was about center field and maybe the genesis of that, because you, you seem to be somewhat of a natural out there, and it's not really a position that maybe a lot of fans expected you to play. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I've always considered myself a good athlete, and, you know, I think sometimes in this, in this business you can, uh, you can get labeled a certain way as like a, a not a good athlete or you know you kind of get lumped into these categories and and I think I honestly got unfairly lumped into a into a category of, of a not athletic outfielder that only hits and uh, I think that was unfair and I think uh, you know I think I handled myself pretty decently over there sure and did you play the position a lot as a kid, or where did you play mostly? Did you play all around the diamond like you are now? Uh, I mean, yeah, I played shortstop, I yeah. pitched, I, I caught, I did everything yeah. as a kid. You know, multiple sport athlete, uh, played two sports in high school, so. Well, is there something to be said about center field? Because in the corner, sometimes you get uh, a, a, a line drive that tails away or, or down the line, and you. you your collision course for the wall. Center field is kind of a cool thing because you, you have all the real estate in front of you. Nobody sees the game like a center fielder. Yeah, yeah. I think I've always said it's it's easiest it's the easiest outfield position to pick up to read the ball from because um, and that's for one reason and that's that nobody's ever pulling the ball at you when you're in center field. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's just easier to read the ball off the bat, and it, it you know, speed helps, but I think, uh, actually, I think quickness is even more important when you're playing a corner position rather than, than just pure speed. So I think, um, you know, whatever whatever position you're talking about, you got to be a good athlete, and, yeah. I, and I think... Um, you know, center field's no different. It just, uh, you know, I might not have the speed that other center fielders have, but, but uh, what I lack in that, I make up for in, in other things. Well, is, is it important now more than ever to be uh, versatile because the pitching staffs these days are so big, there are fewer and fewer people on the bench, and the more guys a manager could have to play multiple positions, the better, I assume, right? Uh. Yeah, you're asking the wrong guy. I don't know. I, yeah. I uh, but yeah, I certainly take pride in in my ability to play. I guess uh, you could say four or five, arguably different positions on the field, and um, 
you know, yeah, I mean, I think if, if that helps me fit in somewhere, I'm, I'm all for it, of course. And it seems like your bat has always kind of forced your way into the lineup no matter where you played. And you know, from the rookie year here when you came in uh, and, and had a real nice first season and then the injuries in the second year and now you're back at it again. Do, do you always adjust with your stroke? Is it, do you always reinvent it? Are you always working on it? Or is it pretty much the same Mark Hanna every year? Um, I, I wouldn't say I ever reinvented it. Um, you know, I think, I'll say this, I think guys that hit can just hit. And uh, I've always been able to hit in my career and I've always had success hitting. and. Um, whether I don't know if it's because I'm good at making you know adjustments or, or if I just am kind of savvy in, in the way I go about my work or whatnot, but but I am a, kind of a hitting nerd and and I'm a, a student of the swing you could say and I, I love talking hitting and, and studying hitting and and uh, it's really a goes further than just a job for me it's it's a passion it's a true passion it's i think it's something that i'll i'll never lose interest in you know even when i'm done playing do you have more confident confidence with your power stroke this year uh you're, you're hitting them in fact the, the the one in seattle that beat them in the the middle game in the ninth inning pretty impressive after uh paxton struck out 16 batters in seven innings and it didn't seem to go in the A's way and suddenly a home run by Lowry in the eighth and yourself in the ninth and the A's the A's won that so about your power game um it's always just kind of been there um you know I it's not really uh it's a thing that I usually don't have to think about too much because as soon as I try to think about trying to hit home runs, uh, that's when it usually goes south for me. So, it, you know, if I'm just focused on hitting and uh, making good contact and hitting good pitches, then then the home runs seem to just kind of show up when they do. And I think, I think for me, not everybody, but for me, I think that's the best way to go about it. So I have to ask this one. Uh because maybe it's the great unknown, or, or maybe everyone knows by now. You know, the mask, you, you used it early in the season. You had it in Seattle for the opener in center field, but not at first base for the second game. How, how did that come about, and when when do you pick and choose? Uh, when do you actually use it? Um, yeah, I mean, there was one day in Oakland where it was like in the 40s, I think, and it was really windy and, and just... You know, I, I don't handle the cold well as it is, and, and that day it was freezing in Oakland, and I put the mask on, and wouldn't you know it, I think I had two or three hits that game, and had a great game, and made a couple catches or something, and, and uh, wore it the next day, and same thing, played really well, and it's just kind of a, it was a superstition thing for a couple games there, and then then we went to Texas, and it was, you know, the weather got a little nicer, and it was became more of a, you know, first night here, it was in the late 50s, or in the high 50s, and, you know, I'm, I don't want to be cold when I'm playing. That's the bottom line. And, uh, I'm going to keep wearing it whenever I feel like, uh, you know, whenever I feel like it's a little too cold. Those of us from California have to bundle up sometimes. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> but maybe last point here. Growing up as a kid, how much did you follow baseball? Did you have a, a team? Did you have a guy? Did you emulate 
somebody when you're a youngster, including on the Giants or Ace? Um, I was a Giants fan. I grew up a Giants fan. Um, I was into baseball, but I was also into other sports, very into football too. And, uh, you know, I, I, I tried to imitate all of them. I was up there and tried to copy Barry, Barry Bonds' batting stance. I tried to copy McGuire and Gary Sheffield and Alex Rodriguez. I, ju I just wanted to be like all of them and we'd you know, mess around doing all that stuff and whip the ball and stuff. And, and just, uh, yeah, I mean, I just had fun with it, but uh, I, never, I never really tried to hit like anyone except myself. Well, that's not a bad club. All the guys you mentioned have hit 500-plus home runs. <laughs> so, But, Mark, hey, thank you very much. Really appreciate you uh, being on the podcast. All right, thanks. Okay. Well, I'm honored to introduce our next guest, and that's... The voice of the A's, the longtime voice of the A's, Ken Korak, who did a magnificent job of the Sean Manaya no-hitter, especially the final call. Now, Ken's done a couple. He's done the Dallas Braden perfect game, and then this no-hitter. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the podcast. And tell me the difference, which your first was Dallas, your second was Manaya. How different were they? Well, it's an honor to be on your show, John. I mean, it's a podcast. So, or the, well, yeah, it's a podcast uh, to be with Shay Hay. Yeah, and uh, I understand you're sitting in for the illustrious Susan Slusser. True. Uh, they they were different, but they were similar in that one of the great things about a no hitter, and of course in Dallas's perfect game, was the way things build and the suspense. And as you know, because you've covered no hitters before. You start thinking about it, maybe the fourth or fifth inning, but you don't take it real seriously because 95% of them are broken up at some point. But then uh, in each game, I got this rush of adrenaline in the seventh inning because you're thinking, well, this could happen. Uh, the, the story of Braden's uh, perfect game was the true Hollywood story. Um, as you know, John, after he lost his mom while he was in high school and then raised by his grandmother and she was at the game and then I think it was as emotional as I've ever been on the air when I looked down after the final out and saw Dallas and his grandmother embracing on the field and the fact that it happened on Mother's Day was uh, such a storybook uh, ending. The, the Manaya no-hitter also had its own twists and turns and, and more spice because of the controversial scoring decision on the pop fly that Leon hit to Marcus Simeon out in short left center, and then uh, the overturning of the, the call involving the baseline with Andrew Benintendi later in the game. So, um, and then the fact that he did it against against the Red Sox, they were 17 and two going into that game. Now, there's an interesting sidebar that I believe you referred to on the broadcast, and you actually channeled the Drysdale scoreless streak. And something to do with the umpires, if I recall. Can you tell that story? Well, uh, as you know, because you're a, you're a fan of the history of the game and also of Vin Scully, yeah. and it just points to how old I am, <laughs> that I listened to the game in 1968 when the Dodgers played the Giants, and Drysdale was on the verge of throwing his fifth consecutive shutout en route to 
eventually working 58 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings and at the time setting a record and there was that that famous sequence where he hit Dick Dietz with the bases loaded the Giants catcher but Harry Wendelstadt the plate umpire ruled that Dietz had not tried to get out of the way of the pitch which is seldom invoked as you know John you don't you don't see that call very often and of course the Giants were incensed and they Wendelstadt brought Dick Dietz back to home plate and eventually he flied out and Drysdale got out of the inning and wound up uh, finishing his fifth straight um, shutout. And that was, you're right, that 50 was, years ago this it was, month. It was, Giants-Dodgers at Dodgers Stadium. Right, it was almost literally 50 years and as the A's are celebrating their 50th anniversary. And as fate would have it and as things get you know, the tapestry of baseball gets knitted together sometimes and woven together in these these interesting things happen by happenstance. The plate umpire during Manaya's uh, no-hitter was Harry Wendelstadt's son, Hunter Wendelstadt. And of course, there was the controversial play involving Andrew Benintendi, initially ruled safe, then ruling, and it was Wendelstadt and the first base umpire, Adrian Johnson, who had initially made the call, getting together, and Bob Melvin coming out, and at Melvin's urging, the umpires huddling together and then going through the play and determining that Ben Benintendi had run out of the baseline. He was out of the three-foot area uh, as, as the runners, as you know, established the baseline trying to elude a lunging Matt Olson at first base. So here was a father and a son 50 years apart involved in controversial calls while history was unfolding on the diamond. Now, you grew up listening to Vinny. Yeah. And not just in the Bay Area on KFI late at night with the scratchy F- AM dial, but you actually lived in the area enough to get him in clearly on a nightly basis. An idol of yours. Now, might you have at all channeled Vince Scully in any of these, either of these <laughs> no-hitters? I'm not saying you're the next Vince Scully. I'm not saying uh, you, you're copying him because nobody can. But it, it's, it was kind of a cool thing because you, you and I both know the Koufax perfect game and it was poetry when he said it they made a 45 out of it uh, you, you could you could read it on the internet they've written books about it it's just a beautiful description of the perfect game fast forward all these years and you're calling a perfect game and you're calling a no-hitter 1965 the Koufax perfect game against the Cubs the last batter was Harvey Keene it was a 2-1 count you're right. I mean, we've all, all of us in our business, and even yourself, because I know you got to know Vinny very well over all the years of covering games involving the Giants and the Dodgers. I've never deliberately tried to copy him, <laughs> except maybe to have some fun with some yeah. stuff, but also to pay my respects to him and refer back to some of the things that he did. One of the things I thought that he did that was, I guess, magnanimous might be the word, was in the ninth inning of Koufax's perfect game, he set the defense. He went around the diamond, first, second, third, all the way through to the outfield, and and he was asked about that, and he said that he did it because he wanted to identify those players, so if they had listened to a recording of that ninth inning of Koufax's perfect game, that they would have that as something that would be uh, maybe a memento or a, a, a record of the history that they were part of, something that would be special to them. And so in the ninth inning of Braden's perfect game and in the ninth inning of Manaya's no-hitter, I went around the diamond and I set the defense just like Scully had done. Uh, 
because I thought that was such a special thing that he had done. And then I gave the time. I didn't do the time. I mean, I think that's Vinny's signature. As he went through the perfect game, he mentioned, you know, it was 9.14 p.m. And uh, I didn't do that. In the city of the Angels. Yeah, but I did give the date uh, in the ninth inning of Manaya's. I think I did it in, in Braden's. And, you know, I guess paying homage to him uh, is something that um, I, I try to do if I can. Very respectful. I, I appreciate that. And w- one other thing I appreciated about Vinny was the manner in which he let the crowd tell the story. He would break it down, announce what happened, and then get off and let the fans cheer. The Gibson home run, for instance, went on and on. And you don't want to keep talking. You just want to let the fans tell the story. Did you do that at all for either of these, uh, the Manaya or the Braden games? I did it for a long time after the Braden. Uh, I don't know how long it was that I laid out, but it was a significant, uh, maybe 20 or 30 seconds, I think, or wow. maybe longer. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, in the Manaya game, I, I laid out as well, but it was, it was a little odd because it, at the Coliseum, as soon as the game ended, or right shortly after the, the game ended, and I'd made the initial call, I wanted to lay out and just spend however many seconds and let the, the crowd, the roar of the crowd and the energy in the building tell the story. Then I heard my call over the PA system because they had replayed it that quickly, and I thought, well, maybe it might be a little self-indulgent just to pause here and have that go out over the air. So... I kind of talked over myself in a way at that point. Well, that's that's pretty good stuff. I, I wonder if any ever heard his voice immediately after a game while he was trying to let the fans tell the story. Anyway, I, I don't know. I don't think that he. Uh, maybe they didn't quite have the technology back then. But I, I did. I, you know, I channeled. I, I channeled him, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes I'm just struck by, you know, John by how he's inside my head. And I don't even know it. And just last thing, you you grew up and listened to him. And what what was the story? And last thing here, we'll wrap it up. In terms of you meeting him for the first time, and because you, you he was your number one guy. I mean, was he your idol? Was he the reason you got in the business? Well, I think I think that and the fact that my dad was a coach. Yeah. My dad, uh, who listened to the no hitter at the age of ninety nine, called me the next day and said, I, I listened to the whole game. You can imagine that wow. of a father who was such a huge influence because my dad was a baseball and basketball coach in, in junior college and also in, in high school in the Los Angeles area. And he, he's, 90, he's almost 100 years old and listened to the game. So What a great story. You know, what a thrill for me. But uh, So my dad and also, no question, Scully and all those days and nights listening to baseball games. But there were a lot of other people. Uh, you and I have talked um, Dick Enberg, Chick Hearn, Bill King, Juan. I listened to Bill all the time in the in the '60s, late at night. You could get the Warrior games late at night. So we've been we've been so fortunate to, as Californians to have this incredible, rich broadcasting history to to draw upon. Well, 50 years from now, they'll be talking about the the Korak perfect game and no hit broadcast, and they'll they'll say, "I tried to channel." Ken Korak. I doubt it, but thank you. (laughs) Ken, thank you very much. That's great stuff. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. This show is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Our theme music is The Third by Anatech, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. The show is produced by me and Fernando Diaz. For more A's coverage, you can follow me on Twitter at Susan Slusser. 
check out all of our coverage at sfchronicle.com. <laughs>